Jules, today's guest is Foodie, yes. former professional footballer who's yes. got a big job. Yes. So who are you and why are we talking to you? My name is Greg Burhalter, head coach of the U.S. men's national team. Right, Greg, on that point, I've always wondered about this. On your birth certificate, does it say Greg or does it say Gregory or something else? I'm trying to get to the three G's here. Is it a family name? Yeah. It's not a family name, but my mom specifically didn't want Gregory, so she just closed it off with another G. She's like, how are we going to avoid Gregory? Just let's add another G to that, and that's kind of done. You can't add the O-R-Y to it. So earlier he was wondering, I wonder where that come from. You know that other G. I wonder like, I need to ask him. I really need to ask him. I said, Gab, there might be more important questions. No, but I need to ask him because really I'm wondering where it's coming from. So now we know. The whole world knows. I mean, there is a whole tradition of U.S. men's national team players with slightly unusual non-mainstream names, right? So uh, I think it's in keeping with that, right? You've got... (laughs) Players whose names sound like law firms or investment banks or, you know. Um, but I want to move on from that. One thing that, that, that struck me when, when, when we first talked was, in general, the U.S. is a massive country. Um, and where you grow up impacts your chances of getting good coaching from a young age, um, playing against top competition. Now, in that sense, you were kind of born with a silver spoon in your mouth because... You're from one of the hotbeds in northern, in northern New Jersey. And am I right in thinking you also played with Claudio Rain as a kid? So you didn't even have the burden of being the most talented player on the team, right? <laughs> That's right. I was, I was an underdog. Um, but, you know, you don't even realize it when you're growing up, like the area that you're in. Um, it was just soccer everywhere. A ton of... Um, families that came from from abroad and settled in america and have just this passion for soccer and you're talking soccer all the time and like but you don't realize that it's not like that in everyone everywhere else in america and you know we had some really good talent and i was fortunate enough to be on the the younger side of that so i always was playing playing up and playing against these guys and it was really fun it was a really fun time. Um, and then my own club team, you know, Claudio's dad was the coach and me and Claudio were same, same birth year. And, um, you know, we got to some really cool experiences early on in life. We went to Brazil and Argentina and Uruguay when we were 13 years old to play with our club team and play against all the best teams there. Um, we went for a tournament in Peru and, you know, we went to Argentina to, to play for Independiente for a summer. So this was all before I was 15 years old. Um, just an incredible, lucky experience that, that we had. So, so, just on the back of that, if, and to bring the focus, if hypothetically, if you'd been born in, say, Boise or Lubbock, Texas, might you have turned out, might you have had the career that you had? You would have, or do you think it would have, you would have faced so many more obstacles? And, and is it different today? It is different today because soccer is more widespread. There's more elite talent centers. There's more There's more concentrations of, of good players around the United States. But I was certainly fortunate. Um, you know, I, there's no chance I would have been the player I was if, if I was, didn't grow up in that area. You 
know, if I didn't have parents that were committed to driving me, you know, hours or 45 minutes or an hour to training or, you know, it was, I, I was lucky and, but it was fun. You know, Manny Shellshite was led a whole generation of players there with the Union Lancers and it, it was a good time to be um, in New Jersey. And in terms of, of watching football when you were a kid, what was, yeah. what was that like with, was it, Was it something that were you identifying? Did you have idols who were playing in Europe, for example? Was it how how did cause the playing side? Okay, you play with your mates, and this this is all good. But what about learning from other footballs, watching it, trying to reproduce maybe what you see on television or, or yeah. into the pitch? And you weren't watching MLS when you were a kid because there was no MLS. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I wasn't watching MLS. You know what I was watching? Two things. I was watching full Italian league games on RAI Uno. <laughs> and I was watching 90 Momentos. You know the, the, the recap show? Yes, 90 Momentos. Every Sunday I watch that show. <laughs> Every Sunday and, and I watch a game. So... It was quite boring, Jules. To, to play the <laughs> my hero was Antonio Cabrini. Remember, Cabrini? Oh, I love that it. Was my hero. <laughs> but it did improve your Italian, and maybe even dare I say, I don't think I'm giving away state secrets here, but you are a little bit of of a foodie as well. Am I right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> so we got to ask. We, we've had this conversation, Jules and I. All right. Genie comes out of the bottle. Says, Greg. You got to deal with the devil now. The U.S. will definitely win the 2026 World Cup if you only you agree to to give up Italian food forever or give up French food forever. <laughs> do you take the oh. deal? Which which are the two? I know you give up one of them, yeah. but do you take the deal? I am giving up one, and what I would say is, and and don't take this the wrong way, Jules. It's that. <laughs> oh. It, no, it's well, it's Italian food to me is like if you had to say, okay, like French food is amazing. You go out for an amazing meal and, and you know, and you just get blown away. But Italian food is a convenience. It's like you, it's every day. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. And to me, and, and, I, and I, I just don't, you know, I haven't lived in France, so I don't appreciate the baguette and the, and the simple meals and the ham and cheese toasties that you have. But For, for me, Italian food, you, you could have every day and, and be okay. And French food, yeah, yeah. When, I, when I think of it, it's the experience. You know, me and my wife would have four-hour dinners. Um, you know, <laughs> the menu, you get degustation, you know. Degustation. Yeah, and we would just sit there for hours and, and have dinners. <laughs> and that's why I love French food, but you can't do that every day. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> that's a fair, that's a really fair explanation. I take that. I got to ask a question that we ask, I think, just about everybody out there or I, I like to ask experts, I might have even asked you this before, is, and I think I know what the answer is going to be. How old were you? Oh, I love this question. I love like, this I'm question, sorry. no, because I think it applies, and I think you can learn something, something about somebody. You say that all the time, I'm not sure, but anyway, right. anyway. Every pro was the best player on his team at some point growing up. And then at a certain age, he wasn't. <laughs> I think I know the answer to this because you played with Claude Urena from <laughs> exactly. a young age. How old were you when you said, like, I am not the biggest dog here? <laughs> That's great. So I got to think exactly what the year was. But I went from, like, playing recreation soccer in my town. And dominating, and, I assume, right? And dominating, scoring 10 goals a game, <laughs> playing forward, you know, playing wherever, wherever I was playing. You know, I would go forward to score. Then I come back in defense to prevent goals. And I go up again for four. But then it's funny because there was this coach called Leo Battaglia. 
and he was coaching the Bergen kickers and he came to watch these rec leagues, basically scouting players. And he brought me to the, to the team. And I, I think if I, if I believe, I think I was 11 years old or 12 years old and I played forward the first game for them uh, on, on like a trial or something. I scored two goals, but I, I wasn't dominating like I, like I normally was. And next game, he moved me back in the defense. <laughs> and, and I realized really quickly that like, I'm not the best guy on this team at 12 years old already on this <laughs> on this one traveling team. And, and, you know, but I think it was a really good lesson for me because right from there, I was like, man, I need to keep working. And I, and, and I did keep working. Then I moved to the, the other team uh, two years later um, that Claudio's dad was the coach. And again, I wasn't, I wasn't even, I was probably not even the top five players in the team. And, and that was something where, again, I just kept working hard and, and, I think that, you know, that mentality stayed with me and, and really helped me throughout my whole career. And then you went, you went to Europe, uh, you know, at a time where it was not easy to go from, from the US to Europe. There was a few players who did it, of course, and Claudio again did it too. You went to the Netherlands and you went to England, you went to Germany, and then later to coach in, in Hammarby as well. But what, what did you learn and, and how was, did, were you there to take, every positive, everything, were you with just sharp eyes and just looking and say, okay, I like this, I'll take this, I, I'm not sure about that, I won't take it. And what was that kind of experience that you had, both as a player and as a manager? No, that was exactly it. It was amazing. I mean, being, I felt like, I felt like Holland at the time, like, was like this movement in soccer in, in you know, the mid-90s. Mm where Ajax won the Champions League, you know, um, you know, PSV was really strong and they were just exporting players and, and it, like the league was, was good. And it was an amazing time for me. You know, I always love to talk about football, but when I was in Holland, it was a different level. Everyone talked about football. <laughs> Everyone was an expert on football and, and having those conversations and just learning. Like I remember guys getting so mad at me if I passed the ball to the wrong foot when they wanted to shoot, and I didn't pass it hard enough. Or the forward, I would put balls into him, would spin on it, and he would yell at me, why are you spinning the ball into me? Play it straight. I mean, all this stuff, it was amazing. Like, I just had this, this, um, this great education, and, and it, was, it, was, it, was, it was fantastic. So the six years in Holland, they gave me this understanding of, of, you know, of tactics at, at almost a different level. Mm. And um, then I went to England, And it, in the championship, and it was the exact opposite. And it was no tactics. <laughs> you know, it was really, it was just get the ball forward, put it in the channel, let's get up. And and it, I was disappointed because I always wanted to go to England and play there. And then it, when when Steve Bruce came in, you know, he started working with a back four, four four two, pretty good, you know, good shape, good understanding of how a back line moves. So I got a great, um, you know, understanding of that. And, and working with him was was fun. And then going to Germany was, was to me, the, the, the best combination of Holland and England. Yeah. So it had the high intensity, the speed, like English game, but more tactical than, than, the, than the England game. Like more, tactics were sort of on the Dutch side. There were some Dutch coaches there, but, but also looking at the game in, in, a, in, a, in a good way. So, and the stadiums in Germany were great. So for me, the, the experience of Europe was... Um, It was great. It was something where, you know, I really feel like I know the soccer cultures of those three countries um, really well. 
Although I'm gutted that he picked Italian food instead of French food. I have to say that <laughs> his answer made the lot of sense. So I still, I still like him. Yeah, and I think what, what we're hearing there is obviously just how unique his, not, not unique, but how specific his pathway was, yeah. which allowed him to become a national team uh, coach. Because so much of it, you know, we always talk about nature versus nurture. Yeah. You're born a talent, you become a talent. I think environment is, as we saw there, is so important. If he hadn't grown up, as, as he told us, you know, in that area, that in that area, area yeah, yeah, it wouldn't have happened. Yeah. U.S. is a big country. New Jersey is a small state. Northern yeah. New Jersey is a small part of yeah. a small state, and it kind of feels that there's, if you're not in one of those pockets, it's that much more, um, that much more difficult. And and you know, that's why I had to ask him. Knowing many in that generation of players who were his generation of national team players, as well as the one before the Alexi Lalases and Todd Ramos and so on, um, you get a sense those guys made a lot of sacrifices. And you wonder, are today's people a little bit softer? Listen, the, what these guys go through now, that, and, and I just think it's different, right? That's what it is. It's just different. And, and to compare them, you know, okay, we had some things in our generation that were difficult and stuff, and and our road maybe was more difficult. But the amount of pressure these guys are under nowadays at such a young age, we know nothing about that. You know, when I think about, you know, 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds, what they're, you know, I was in college in 18, at 18, living a college life. You know, it was, you know, these guys are under a tremendous amount of pressure. There's a tremendous amount of fixtures. I think it's a lot harder nowadays. And, uh, and the game's gotten much better nowadays. So I, I think it's, you know, it's... I think it's nostalgia that's that's playing the role there. <laughs> this is your first time coaching a national team. You and I have talked about this before, but it's a very different rhythm from coaching a club team where you see the players every day, you've got continuous feedback. Now they're at arm's length, and then when you get them for, for international breaks or whatever, everything is concentrated. Yeah, and that was the biggest learning curve right there when I took the job. Um, you know, I was really intent on building a strong culture of the team. And, you know, and people say, oh, it's not a club team. You can't build that. And, you know, I disagree with that. I still think you could have a strong culture with the national team. But from a playing style standpoint, it, it, it is getting back to, to basics, keeping everything really simple because you have no time to train. And, um, and that's been the biggest learning um, thing for me since I took the job. And that's been, that's been a great process. How do you fix that? How do you do that? I, I think, you know, especially with COVID and these condensed windows and three games in seven days, I don't, I don't think there's, there's much to be fixed in terms of saying, okay, we're going to have more training time. But in general, it's doing workout. It's doing more work outside of camp. So it is, you know, doing videos with the guys from their games, with the, what they're doing with their clubs kind of in, integrating into what we're doing um, with our club. Say, for example, Eric Palmer Brown with Twas playing three in the back. We said, okay, we have this idea. We're going to build with three. You're playing in the middle. These are the passes that you're already making with your club that we can see you making with us also. So kind of priming them when they come into camp. Second thing, would be, you know, it's not my job, but I think there should be some look at the calendar from FIFA and say, you know, how are we scheduling games? What are we, you know, what are we doing? Is there enough time? You know, for for both because uh, you know everything got jammed up in these last couple of years for sure, and it made it um, really difficult to sustain. And the players are, are who I feel bad for the most is because these guys are 
they're burning it at both ends. You know, they're going with their club, tw- you know, three times a week. Then they come to the national team and do the same thing. And it's tough. It's really challenging. You know, when you took the job, was there part of you? Did you have to think much about it? Did you? Was it was it a no-brainer for you in the sense that yeah, this is amazing. I mean, I don't know how you realize what a great generation you're gonna you're gonna have and work with, and and all that optimism and that great momentum and the dynamic and everything. Or were part of you thinking that like, this this is a high-pressure job? This is a pressure because you're also competing with other U.S. sports, uh, not just not just other soccer countries. Was it was it was it a very simple choice? Yeah, my heart was always telling me to take it. Um, you know, as being an ex-national team player, mm-hmm. you get this opportunity, and it's hard to turn it down. Um, you know, I have a lot of love for the national team. Um, played for the national team for a long time, and and seeing where the national team program was, I thought there was an opportunity. You know, when I made the initial, started making the initial depth charts, and I'm looking at the players, it was tough in the beginning, man. It was yeah. tough to say, okay, how are we gonna how are we gonna get out of this? You know, <laughs> this is the player pool. No, really, because. You're talking about 2018 at the time. You know, I'm interviewing for the job in 2018. And, you know, you have guys, you know, Gio Reyna was, what, 15 years old at the time, mm. 16 years old. You know, he was, you know, he was, he was in the depth chart, but it was like asterisk, you know, hopefully he keeps progressing. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it, it was that type of stuff. You know, Tyler Adams, you know, Christian was already broken through. Um, but there wasn't a lot of guys that you, you yeah. could say, okay, these guys are full established, great young, you know, great players. So you had to be patient. And, and part of it was having um, belief that these guys are going to develop into the players we think they're going to be. And then you start thinking about excitement, right? That, that's the yeah. next level. They say, okay, this, this group can really do something. You know, we, we can have a quality of player that we haven't had yet in, in America. You, you said you've had, obviously, a long uh, history with the, the Reina family you know Joe is the third generation almost that you're very close to can you talk to us a little bit about him because not just to single out one player of the squad it's not but but what's your relationship with him what's your what's your view of him of his talent but also of, of the kid that he is of the the, the 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 heritage with with Claudio as his dad you know everything that he went through everything that he, he went through this end of the season with the injuries that clearly were difficult for him and we saw his tears and and all of that what's what can you tell us about about joe right now he's he's a great kid he, he's a competitive kid he, he's a player that you knew early on seeing him you know at 12 13 14 that he was going to make it in something he was really so driven. you could tell really at that age definitely i mean whether it was basketball or so i mean he was driven and his skill set was just you know was amazing at, mm. at that young age in in both sports actually you know basketball also he was a really good basketball player yeah. um so you know the relation you know it's it's difficult right because now as as a national team manager you you, you have a you know it's it is a different it turns into a different relationship right yeah but the connection's always there the, the bond is always there um you know our families are really close really good friends and um you know, and Gio, there's there's moments where I look at him and it's and you know like putting him on the field or something, or when he's on the field and it, it's 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 so familiar, right? <laughs> like you're looking at something that's so familiar to you, and that's such a great feeling. You know, it's almost like you're 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 putting a family member in the game. You know, right. and and that's that that's been really fun. Um, 
you know, the other side of it's just it's been great watching him progress and grow and and, um, and and see how he's adapted and developed. And again, like you're talking about how the difference in generations. You know, this kid was over in Germany at 16 years old by himself. You know, like we don't know what that is, and and we try to compare it. You know, oh, I went when I was 20, 21. You know, it's different. You know, with 21, you're you're turning into a man. He went as a kid, hmm. and and he's you know dealing with all that stuff. So you know. I'm excited for to see how he develops in his career and, and the impact he can make on, on global soccer, not just U.S. soccer. Obviously, with with Gio, with Pulisic, you're talking about kids who went over to Europe very, very young. There's a school of thought that also says that for many players, maybe it's best, maybe it was right for them, but for others, maybe it's best if they stay in MLS and progress. Some previous national team coaches before you were pretty thinking of Jurgen Klinsmann here had fairly strong views that you know maybe MLS wasn't the right place for players to grow what's what, what's your general take here I love this part of the conversation thank you for this <laughs> <laughs> you, you said ask me anything man and uh no seriously I'm, I love it and I'll tell you why it's because it's simple to me it's a really simple answer you go to the highest level like you you play at the level until you're challenged and then you move to the next level until you're not challenged anymore. And then you go to the next level. And and if you keep doing that, you're going to be okay. Like the issue becomes when you, when you're still challenged at this level, but you want to go to that level, then you, there's going to be, there's going to be problems. And I think it's important to note, and, and we can talk about this is some of these recent transfers from MLS, they were too early. You know, you think about Brian Reynolds, you know, who's going to, to Roma, you know, look at him, look at his development, what happened to his development. Um, you know, there's, you know, George Bello, you can make the argument that he could have stayed longer and dominated in MLS and then went when he was 20. So there's a number of guys that I'm just concerned that they're leaving too early because what MLS is, is an opportunity for young players to be on the field. And that's valuable. And when they're dominating, when they're done, when they're not getting challenged anymore at the MLS level, which may or may not happen, now you move and you go on. And I think that's that's a good way to look at it at any level, right? If you're playing in France and you're killing the French mm-hmm. league, okay, now you go to the Premier League. You know, it's it's no there's a no the thing about soccer, it's a it's a normal like food chain, right? It's really simple. You go you just keep graduating these leagues until you're in the Premier League, basically, or you're at a top club in, in another country. So why do you think then they leave too early sometimes? Because it can't just be the money, for example. Do, do they think that maybe if you, if you experience something different, so different coaching methods, if you go to Germany or to England or to France as, as a, a young age? I mean, we, we did an interview with the Augsburg um, CEO and we talked about Ricardo Pepe. And I, I find it fascinating that they took a big chance and they went to sign him for a lot of money. He was still very young and as great as the start of his career had been, they were still like, okay, let's see how he adapts to the Bundesliga and to European football and everything was going to be so different and all of that. And you can still say that it's, it's the learning, part of the learning curve and we may be seeing next season uh, really what, what he makes and what he does in the Bundesliga. But why do you think then some of them maybe don't just take an extra season or two in MLS and are, are too eager maybe to leave for Europe too quickly? I think opportunity, um, the opportunity is in front of them and um, they say, okay, now is my time. Uh, you know, this may never come again. I think that could be part of it. Um, the other part of it could be financial. Mm-hmm. You know, if um, you know, a young player is on his first contract in Major League Soccer, 
you know, he's making 150, 200 grand and he's offered all of a sudden a million dollars a year. It's a different equation, yeah. right, for the player. So there's a number of different factors. But again, that's, I think it's short-term thinking. I, I think the, the way to look at it is, is this level too easy for me? If the answer is yes, you, you got to move on and, and keep progressing. If the answer is no, you know, keep working. You know, keep stay in an environment where you can keep progressing, where you're playing every week, right? Because that's important. Games are are massive for these young kids, and then you can move on after that. You know, the other thing I'd say is like in in the case of Ricardo Pepe and and Augsburg, I know is a stable club, and, and one of the things I told him going there is, listen, you're going to have some stability with Augsburg, right? It's not the Munich where there's so much pressure on you, or or the you know the glob box of, of the world, but you know, when you look at the platform, he's got one option basically to play. You're playing Bundesliga games or you're not playing games, right? I think that the, the reserve option in Germany isn't so strong yet, yeah, and, that's, and that's a problem for him. You know, his the second team, I think, is in the fourth league, if that, you know, so that's an issue there because he needs to look at how am I going to keep developing if I'm not in the field every day. I'm glad Greg went there because... Yeah. You know, this issue, this goes back, I referenced Klinsmann there years ago, and then went back, I think, because it wasn't 100% on what, I mean, we knew, obviously, MLS is what it is, and this idea national team coaches think about the national team, and so I went back to reference the Klinsmann thing, and what he, what he did was, what happened was, if you remember when Michael Bradley and Clint Dempsey returned from MLS, you know, they were still pretty much in their prime, lots of good football, and... Klinsman said something, and this is not a direct quote, but about like, oh, you know, he questioned whether they'll still be able to uh, to be as good as they yeah. were because they're not going to have the same level of competition yeah. around them in MLS than they would as they would elsewhere. And then at the time, this led to all these MLS owners getting all freaking out, Don Garber, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> you know, MLS and U.S. Soccer Federation, theoretically, are two separate entities, right? Yes, that's right. Um, but I thought he wasn't, you know, he was unafraid to go there. And I, th- and I thought, I thought what he said made a lot of sense. Mm. You know, it does, Ricardo Pepe, to, to, to mention him, or Brian Reynolds, yeah, yeah, no good to come and practice with Roma for six months and never play. I think he played one game for Roma, right? You're better off staying. So I think it's important that people move when they're ready. You know, the line the line he said about when you feel you're too good almost for your league, then that's the time to move to a better league. I think this is, you know, it can sound a bit obvious to you, but but trust me, a lot of players don't think that way. They just see an offer, think they're ready when they're clearly not ready and go for it. I'm not just talking about Pepe or Reynolds George or George Bellow, others. the other one you yeah, mentioned. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think this is this is something, especially for young players. When you're older, it might be a little bit different. But when you're young and you're still learning very much your trade and you're learning a lot, you don't think this is the only way forward. You can easily think, I've got another year, two, three here. And then and then if you're really good, the offers will still be there or more offers or better offer will be there anyway. So what's the See, rush? You hit it on the head though. though. That's, and, and Greg did make an allowance for that. If you're making 250 grand a year in MLS and somebody offers you a three-year mm. deal at a million dollars a year, you're also going to think, okay, my football development's great, but I want to take this gamble yeah, to yeah, learn yeah. something. And I'll have paid off my mortgage and bought my mom a house. But I don't think there's any question from purely um, from, from, from purely football development, 
point of view, there, I think the impression is clear. There's people who move when they're not ready, and maybe they should be getting more football under yeah. their belt. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Gab. Just go to Indeed.com slash Gab right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Gab. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I want to ask you about some recent news off the pitch. This agreement that was reached between the women's national team players and the men's national team players and the U.S. Soccer um, Federation, which, which is pretty, it's pretty unique in terms of of pooling, um, of, of, of well, essentially pooling the prize money, sharing it equally, because a decision made above. Well, above and below, I guess, your head. So I want to ask you about, you know, I'm assuming you're going to say it's a good thing. But what I'm interested in is, are you proud of the fact that ultimately it was your players and the women players who sat down, talked about this, negotiated with the Federation, and and found a solution in ultimately collaborative way? Because this could have gone on further and further and with courts and lawsuits, and I think there was no CBA for the men before that and whatever. Um, I mean, does that also say something about U.S. players being a little more proactive, a little more flexible, a little more open? I think socially conscious. I think, you know, we set a marker down um, for the rest of the world. I'm really proud of the team, both teams, um, for so the women for for fighting that fight. You know, it was a, it was a long fight for the women and, um, and for the men for, for seeing, seeing the pathway and saying that, listen, we can make a statement to the whole world by doing this. So I, I think it's amazing. And I, and I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that other countries will be following suit and, and really setting a marker, not only for soccer, but for other sports and for other jobs in general. I mean, it's a great moment. The way the women's team and the women's players especially reacted to it and that the fight that they put up to be able to get to this point as well with with you know your help and the, the men's team help as well there's there's an interesting dynamic isn't it because the women's team has been so successful especially if you compare with the with the men's team is there things that their setup they were doing with their setup that maybe you looked at when you took the job and said okay this is very interesting what they do there you talked earlier which i thought was fascinating about incorporating the 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 games that the players have with their club with your setup when they come to the national team is there was there anything that you find inspiring from the the women uh, u.s national team you know i I spent a long time talking to Jill Ellis um, before I took the job about coaching a national team, preparing for World Cups and, and coaching through managing through World Cups. So I think that's definitely 
um, something that you, you can take away, right? Anytime you're, you're winning two World Cups, you're doing a lot of things right. And it was great to be able to pick her brain and, and see how she, she managed the group through that process. Um, I have a close relationship with the women's coach now, Vladko, and we're always talking about tactics and, and going through, um, you know, different scenarios. So, you know, I think it's a really collaborative approach that we're taking. Um, I, I know it is. And, um, you know, the women are in an interesting position where, you know, you could see the rest of the world is making a lot of progress, right? When you yeah. look at some of these countries now, how they're playing, they're doing a great job, whether it's France, Spain, England, the Netherlands. So, uh, you know, they, they got to keep working to stay ahead of the game because, um, you know, th- there's some, some really talented countries coming up. Yeah, it's a totally different dynamic. Where, mm. but, but you kind of feel like if if they don't win the World Cup, they failed. If you reach a final and don't win the World Cup, it's a resounding success. So it's almost yeah. like, you know. But but equally for them to stay on top, they need to they need to maintain their edge. You can't take it for granted mm. um, because as, as you say, uh, people are coming up behind them. In, in terms of maintaining their edge, um, I'm, I'm I want to get your take on one of the. One of the changes which we haven't seen in the Premier League because it hasn't been a rule, though will be next season. Um, but I want to ask you about the five substitutions, especially as it's going to play out at the World Cup in Doha, where you know there's a lot of games close together and stuff. What we're seeing with the five subs is what we've seen in, in the leagues that do have five subs. Some some people use it to rotate to manage minutes. Others use it almost as a weapon some have program substitutions um where you know you completely change like every game like these other two guys come on who are faster or strong or whatever um how do you how do you see this how do you i mean how big a factor do you think this is going to be in uh in 2022 it's going to be great i think it's going to when you think about a lot of players going to become a mid-season um, the, the fatigue of, of those fall months are going to start to set in. So I think five subs is going to alleviate some of that. But also the, the tactical flexibility can give managers. And, and just what you're saying about game planning, you know, having, having substitutions planned and um, because you want to give your team a boost, prepare for the next game, um, you know, you can change the look of the team. I think there's a lot of flexibility gives managers. And, um, you know, somewhat surprised Premier League hasn't done it just because of the, the fixtures that they play. And um, but in the World Cup, it's going to be good. So when when you bring on Timothy Weah uh, 20 minutes from the end and he scores the winner against England, we will remember this this, this, this <laughs> conversation that we've had. This this World Cup and now that we you know the draw has been made, there's, there's, you will have some friendly games to prepare. You you will make your squads. Um, I think I guess. I remember Didier Deschamps always saying to me, you don't make a squad with the 23 best players that you have. You make the, the best 23 squad who are going to live together for all that time and harmoniously or try to. And, and it's not always the 23 best players you've got in your, in your country. So you're going to build your squads. How do you approach that competition? How do you see the opponents that you're going to face in that group stage? You know, all of that. I know it's, it feels a bit far, but it will arrive so quickly. You know, one thing, Jules, about this tournament is... It's shorter in both duration and preparation. Mm. So, you know, team chem- while team chemistry is really important, it's not like you're together for eight weeks, you know, where, where like it's vital, right? Where if you get that wrong, you're dead. So this is, you know, we're in a week before our first game. 
Think about that. I mean, that's mm. that's crazy. It is. And so, you know, we've been doing a lot of work uh, on the front end of building this group, building team chemistry. Um, and, you know, I, I think there's a couple spots that will still be, you know, up for grabs. But by and large, there is there is a broader section of the team that's that's pretty well established. And um, and now it's about using these final games um, as a measuring stick. We play we'll play four World Cup um, teams before the World Cup um, in, in two in June, two in September. So that would be a good measuring stick to see where we're at as a group. Um, and then fine-tuning some things and getting the guys you know, um, on board. We might introduce a different formation just to give some flexibility in, in the opening round games. But it, it's exciting. You know, when I think about you know, the potential to play Wales in the first game will be a, will be a difficult game. Mm. And that will be kind of, okay, in a, a really important game for us to get it off to a good start. And then you have the England game, which is on Big Friday in um, the United States, day after Thanksgiving. And, you know, it's really for us, David versus Goliath, right? If you think about it, you know, England's squad is is valued over a billion dollars, you know, and we're we're an up-and-coming team that's trying to make our mark on soccer. Great opportunity for us. You know, they're, they're probably one of the favorites to win the World Cup. And, um, you know, really looking forward to that challenge. And then closing out with Iran, you know, with, with the hopes to position ourselves to get to the next round. And then once you get there, anything can happen. Mm. All right, you mentioned David versus Goliath here. And what I often find interesting about when, when you go to World Cups is teams from, especially from Asia and from CONCACAF, um, they're generally underdogs at the World Cup. And they have to make this transition. If you're the U.S. and Mexico and CONCACAF, you guys are the Goliaths, and everybody wants to knock you off your perch. Um, then you go to the World Cup, and there's bigger dogs there. Uh, and do you then transition a little bit to necessarily that underdog mentality? How do you have the swagger of the favorite um, in qualifying, and then you got to flick a switch and become something else? Or, or does that not go through your mind? Well, I think even when we're favorites, you know, we still approach the game with a lot of respect for our opponent, with, with uh, the idea that intensity is going to be leading the leading the game. You know, we have to bring intensity to every single game, and then we will still want to play the way we play. And um, I think that's the root of the question: Can we still play the same way versus England? Right? Can we still in, impose ourselves uh, um, on on England? like we do on other opponents. And that's going to be the interesting question to answer. You know, I'm, I'm not exactly there yet with, with the game plan for that game. But, um, you know, uh, I believe in, in the talent of our group. You know, I, I know that they're playing at really high levels and they're used to high-level games. So why can't they do the same thing at the World Cup? I felt he sort of played down sort of the dichotomy where of playing in CONCACAF mm. where... You know, other than Mexico and lately Canada, but even Canada, yeah, Canada yeah, yeah, yeah. The US, you're bigger than them. Yeah, you still. You know, they're going to play on the counter. They're going to try to be quick, right? You know, you got a lot of the ball. You can impose yourself on the other team, and now you're at the World Cup. So, what got you to the World Cup needs to change at the World Cup because mm-hmm. now you're playing England, obviously in the group phase, and then yeah, yeah, yeah. He said he didn't quite have his game plan for England, and he said, you know, are we going to try to? impose ourselves on England and dominate them. Frankly, given the way Gareth Southgate's England play, but he seemed very happy to leave the ball to the opposition yeah. and defend. Maybe that's 
maybe that's what'll happen. Yeah, maybe. I mean, the David against Goliath image, which is which is right. It's right Power. to a point. It's, it's right, right to, to a, a point. point. But you but, know, because what well, you you can't at some point we need to. U.S. can't keep thinking. But this of is the youngest team. This is the youngest team in the competition. It will yeah, be the youngest team in the competition. Point. So, the the aim is 2026. Really, this is the big one. This one, even if there's always pressure when you go to World Cup, because if they lose the three games three nil, it's a disaster. And he'll probably look for another job. And he, he probably will have to to do something else. So. You can say there's not pressure because we're preparing for the next one, which is the most important one, which is true. But there's still a lot of pressure to do well because it's a talented team, even if he's the youngest. But you see the youngest. So it's a bit of a tricky one, I think. You're a bit in between, kind of. Yeah. And I think the messaging is going to be, is, is going to need to be critical. Yeah. Um, I also think, and again, this is going to become a big talking point as the World Cup nears. You have one week of preparation. I wonder if this is going to create a whole bunch of weird, screwy results. Maybe. Maybe. And this could be a World Cup of, of upsets and craziness. Mm. Selling a little or a lot? <coughs> Shopify helps you do your thing. However you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launcher online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million dollar stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify is your no excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. What I love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash gabjewels, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash g-a-b-j-u-l-s now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash gabjewels. Since, since you took over in, in 2018, and that so you know that window of four years, and I know that the World Cup is is part of it. But let's let's say for the sake of of, of this interview now that we look into those four years from from when you took over to now. What? How would you assess the progress? Are you happy to where you are now compared to when you took over? Did you think you might be um, maybe a bit stronger or maybe a bit further back than what you are now? Or this has blown your mind? The progress, the Gold Cup beating Mexico, that kind of stuff. Where would you, where would you assess the, the last four years? When we first took over in, um, in 2019, the, uh, you know, we went to the Gold Cup final and, and we played a decent game. We lost to Mexico, one nothing. Um, you know, the, that was in, in July. A couple months later, we played Mexico in New York City. We lost 3 nothing. Um, and since then, we haven't lost to Mexico. You know, we went four games, um, beating them in two finals, um, two qualifiers. We, um, you know, we beat them in one and tied the other one. And what I've seen from the group is just progress, you know, this learning curve. Um, you know, we had, I think in 2021, we had the most wins in the history of the program. Um, you know, won two continental trophies, um, qualified for the World Cup. You know, so there's, you know, as far as the steps that we, we need to take, we've taken them. And now the next step in front of us is the World Cup, you know, and, and for us, it's important to, to do well in the World Cup. It's not just, you know, I, I tell these guys, we're, we don't want to go there as just a participant. You know, we have, 
you know, bigger things on our mind. And, and that's going to be um, key taking that next step. One question that I just hypothetical, so you know, may not want to answer hypothetical <laughs> question, but one thing I always wondered about, you know, you got the U.S. and Mexico, and obviously Canada uh, upsetting the apple cart and playing really, really well in this qualifying. But you are playing a finite group of of teams in your, or at least of competitive teams in your region. Um, when I look at a map and I see that there's ten teams in Comable, and I see that you know Concacaf stretches right down to the very edge of Comable, I ask myself, man, if it was all combined, if you got to play, and obviously it happened at the Gold Cup in 2016 before you were there, but in the Centenario, but would it make would it make your job easier? Would it make the U.S. better if they were playing, you know, a variety of stronger teams in the region for in competitive games? Absolutely, absolutely. So why do you think we're not there? The dollar, money, right? That's why we're not there because, (laughs) right? Everyone wants a big slice of the pie, and they're not willing to give up a slice to, you know. So that's what I think it is. I mean, you know, it's. It would be great if our our tournament was Concacaf and Common Ball combined. That would be amazing. And you know, every couple of years have one of those. It, w- it would really push our group, um, and you know, it would grow the game. I think in our whole you know side of the globe would, would grow the game. Um, you know, but again, I think it comes down to TV contracts, to you know, to money between the the you know the governing bodies, and and hopefully one day we'll work this out that we can play really strong teams against each other moving into 2026 world cup where we don't have to qualify you know think about combining our our tournaments to play in one would be ideal for us for sure and and our region i just wanted to come back quickly on the rivalry with with mexico because you said this is a really good time for for the u.s team you you had you went through that rivalry when you were a player is it different now as a head do you see that rivalry differently as a, as a head coach and is that rivalry a bit different now because for a long time they were dominating but we, we saw with the Sounders beating Pumas in the Champions League final as well which I think means a lot to MLS because it's been a long time since an MLS franchise and an MLS team didn't win it so is that rivalry has, has evolved in a way and, and positively in the sense that now you're, you're on top certainly in the last few games or is it the same one that when you were a player as well it's, I think it's cyclical. I think, you know, right now we have the, the upper hand, I think, with our young talent pool, with our national team, with our club teams, um, you know, winning the Champions League. But things come back around, you know. Mm. When I was a player, we were, we were on top again. Um, you know, we had a good run against Mexico. Um, there were times where we had that dip and they started dominating us and now we're back. You know, it, it's yeah. it's fun. Man. It, it's fun. Just keep competing with each other. Canada's done a great job of inserting themselves into the equation as well with a great generation of players. Um, showed a lot of resiliency um, as a group in qualifying. So I think, you know, the rivalry is as strong as ever. And right now we have the upper hand, but, you know, we can't rest on our laurels. You know, we know that they're right around the corner. Um, they, they recently got Flores from Arsenal, yeah. right, to commit to them. Mm, so, yeah. You know, so they're, they're going to have some, yeah, they'll have some young talent coming up. I want to go back. You mentioned, you mentioned Canada there and, and some of the ups and downs in, uh, um, in qualifying. I, I'll take you back to... A moment that sorry, I apologize in advance for this. A moment we want to forget is the uh, when you took the selfie during the game with the supporter. Um, that got a ton of attention 
And it almost made the game kind of like irrelevant in terms of mainstream media. And when I watched it, it didn't necessarily fit, as I saw it anyway, fit with, with your image or the image of, of U.S. soccer. Um, you know, looking back at that, is this just kind of the price you have to pay that sometimes for U.S. soccer to, to, to get into mainstream media, it's going to be because of moments like that or because something funny happens or a video goes viral or whatever else, as much as it is a lot of good hard work and we've won these three games in a row and we've reached this goal? That's a good question. I don't even know how to process that. But <laughs> it's such a good question that I can't process it. Now, what I'd say is that, you know, this, I think just our news cycle has changed. And, and, and people are more interested in, um, you know, short snippets and, the, you know, attention-grabbing things than they are the context, the full context. And in this particular case, and, you know, I, I don't, you know, I could defend it a little. This particular case, you know, there, there's an injury break in the game. It's minus 30 degrees out. These poor fans are freezing. And um, they're there cheering the whole game. And they ask me for a, a quick picture, and I go over. They're right next to the bench. So I walk two steps over. I say, quickly, let's get it, you know, let's do it quickly, and, and did it, and that was done. Like, to me, it was a non-event. It wasn't like, you know, the game's going on, and, I'm, and I'm, you know, I'm taking selfies during the game. You know, it was, it was something that – it was a non-event that turned into a big event. And, again, you don't want soccer to get attention just for those reasons, and I think that's what you're getting at. You know, yeah. you'd rather them say – Okay, what about the resiliency of our team to play in those conditions, to win three nothing, you know, to have a dominant performance and and close out, you know, close out a very difficult window, right, of freezing cold weather throughout the whole window. That's what you'd like to, you know, to be the headline, and not oh, the coach is is not doing his job; he's taking selfies with fans. You know, that's you know, it's a it's a bit unfortunate, but I also understand. I understand that that's where we're at. And, um, you know, it's, it's a good, you know, learning, learning opportunity for all of us. I think it's because that's, it's the kind of narrative that translates to other sports. It's very easy to understand. Oh, look, you know, we're winning. And so is it respectful? Is it disrespectful? You can easily talk about it on PTI and other shows and so on without necessarily needing, um, needing the whole picture. Mm. And I, and I just wonder, you know, when do we get to this to the point where U.S. soccer isn't necessary, or the U.S. men's na national team is covered by the mainstream media, not necessarily, you know, simply covered to the level that of, of the NFL or NBA. It's not going maybe may not achieve that popularity in our lifetimes, but when it's covered kind of more seriously with slightly more complex narratives, um, because again, viewed from the outside. And I don't get to watch you guys in person other than at World Cups, which obviously <laughs> didn't happen last time around. Mm. I always kind of feel that it's always like, oh, they beat this team, and unless it's Mexico, they were expected to beat them, or they beat, uh, or you know, or they didn't beat this other team. Oh, don't they suck? They're too arrogant. They're too soft. Whatever. You know, it's it's difficult to kind of move past these very very basic narratives and i mean you know there's more complexity to it than that yeah a hundred percent and the the my biggest disappointment with this whole qualifying cycle has been the lack of understanding of how young the group was and what we're doing with who we're doing it with you know i think we you know we played 
28 guys for the first time in World Cup qualifying. And, you know, World Cup qualifying, if, if I could, you know, take you guys through what it's actually like in CONCACAF is an absolute monster. Mm. And, you know, I, I, t- I talked on this conference, and, and what I said was, it's like when you're on a mountain, you know, Jules, you're in the in the French Alps and you're skiing with your family and you take a picture of the mountain and you want to show your friends how big this mountain is and how steep this mountain is. You take the picture and you send it to your friends and they look at the picture and they're like, that mountain doesn't look steep at all. Right? It's like <laughs> it's something that you can't understand unless you're actually there. Yeah. And that's really what it is. Like when you're in these countries playing in the in these conditions with the ferocity that the opponent has and the and the, the weather and the crowd and the, the everything that's going outside of the, the game, it's really difficult to understand from the outside. And unless you're there, um, you know, it's, it's difficult. And then for our young group to navigate this for the first time and go through this and still be successful when, you know, the group was, was almost 30 years average age last time. And they couldn't get it done. And we're doing it with 23-year-olds, and we're, and we're getting it done. You know, we're doing it with basically an Olympic team. And that's my biggest disappointment is that that narrative wasn't played enough. And and how can you change that? I just think we need a bigger platform to do it. You know, mm-hmm. and the World Cup is a great platform to do it on because when you're at the World Cup, there'll be that understanding. You know, we'll be the youngest team in the World Cup. And, um, you know, and if we do well, it will certainly, you know, the players will get the credit that they deserve, yeah. you know, for, for, for doing it. I think you get this in, in every country. Um, I, I like to think that in most countries, even in countries where, you know, football's huge, Brazil or, or, or Spain or whatever, you generally have three categories of people. You've got people who are way into it, who consume yeah. everything, who have an opinion on everything. And um, you've got people who don't really follow that closely, but are aware of it. And they jump in, uh, you know, when there's a big competition. They're the ones I find most annoying <laughs> because they're like, oh, look, they're all rubbish. And like, I'm like, you haven't watched football all year. Now you're talking and it's Euros, whatever. Uh, and then you have people who just don't care who are interested in, in other things and that's fine that's a medical condition clearly uh, yeah. I can't help you now the difference with the US the US has those three sort of and this applies to the media yeah, as well yeah, yeah, yeah. when you're the US national team coach when you speak you're going to field questions from well two of those three constituencies yeah. the ones you don't care whatever but then when you break through to the more mainstream media to the more casual viewer Inevitably, it's either because the U.S. Oh, look, United States national team lost to El Salvador, right? And Good morning, America. Yeah. And here we are, right? Yeah, yeah. Or because of, you know, look, he took the selfie during the game. Or it's usually when something goes wrong or something. And it's, you have to speak to both constituencies. And it's, it's not easy. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. As national team manager, you're expected to qualify for the next World Cup. And kind of week to week, 
unless you lose, most of kind of non-soccer America doesn't notice. So you'll get feedback from the U.S. soccer media and Taylor Twelman will talk and whatever and Grant Wall. But like it's it's that. Then you get to the World Cup and you get all the people who just kind of drop in on the sport and then they pass judgments. And, you know, you're on Good Morning America and this and that. Are you prepared for that? Because you're going to get a whole load of people who have no idea what you do, very little idea about the sport, and they're all going to jump in there, especially if you start doing well and they all jump on the bandwagon. Yeah, you know, I think that's that's a great question. That's funny. Um, you know, that's why we actually lost some of those games to get people involved. <laughs> 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 it's all playing, guys. It's all a play. Uh, now, what I say is that um, you know, it's. I think it's our obligation as national team coaches and players to gr- to help grow the game in the United States. And if we can create, you know, heroes of our players, and we can inspire, you know, young generation of kids to now start playing soccer, we've done our job. And even our, and even if we know these are going to be fans that are just getting on board for the first time, I think it's a it's it's valuable because we may you know attract these guys for life, these people for life. You know, I was thinking about '94 World Cup happened, and the kids watching the '94 World Cup are now parents, and now the their kids are going to be watching the 2026 World Cup in the United States. And I think you're kind of closing the loop on that connection between generations of being fans now. And once you close that loop, once the father, the, the parents are fans and the kids are fans, now you start creating a culture, a fan culture. And, and that's how you sustain growth. And that's how you really build the sport in, in America. So I'm, you know, I think that 2026, 2022, first of all, is, is a big moment for us to capture the attention. And 2026 could be a tipping point for soccer in America. Do you almost prepare 2022 with 2026 in the back of your head or you need almost to do abstraction of the fact that in four years' time it will be on home soil and things will be completely different? But you can't really help not thinking about 2026 when you prepare 2022 because, as you said, 2022 is almost a rehearsal. or Not a rehearsal, but again, we go back to a learning and learning curve for what 2026 will be, especially for the, for the younger generation of the team. Well, it's definitely a preparation for 2026, but like anything, you know, you need to focus on the step you're taking. You can't get ahead of yourselves. Mm. So for us, it's really deep focus on 2022, how to perform well in 2022 um, with a background of how is that going to, you know, how is that going to move us to 2026? But we're, you know, we're the, the way we work is we don't get ahead of ourselves. You know, we stay in the moment. We stay focused on the task ahead. And, um, you know, 2022 is, is, is a big moment as far as we're concerned. Could you just tell us what weekend is for you? How many games you watch? Do you, do you have like Gab and I, three different screens because some games kick off at the same time? Do you sometimes focus on a player that you want to see two or three weeks in a row just to see the progress, the development, and some that you know what them yeah. so well that you, you don't watch them that weekend because like Christian I don't know maybe yeah, you don't need to see Christian Pulisic every single week or do you actually feel like you need to you, you know like what, why is the weekend I don't need to <laughs> you don't, I need, don't to. need to but I like to but I like to <laughs> no um, it, that's a great question so we have you know we have a list that it's a shared note on the phone 
I'm just looking at now, and it's basically all our players and their games, and we uh, we have six or seven staff members that sign up for the games, and and you know we'll we'll get through 50 games or 40 games between between us all, so we'll each take five or six games, and a lot of times it's not about watching it live, because of what you're saying, because of the, they're scheduled at the same mm-hmm. time. So a lot of times on, on Monday morning, you know, we'll spend all of Monday scouting the games that we don't get to see from um, from live view. Yeah. But, you know, I love to wake up and watch soccer. The other day, guys, for the first time, I went to the Globe. You ever heard of the Globe? It's a soccer bar in Chicago. And I watched the FA Cup final there. And it was an amazing experience. Oh, wow. Wait, now, were yeah, you – Now, I need to know, that, like, does the U.S. national yeah. team coach get his own little, like – VIP section in the back, a little <laughs> roped off. You got like bottle service and stuff like that. Or were you so in among I, the the vibes? I was I was in the back, but it wasn't roped off. I was. It's a long straight bar, and I walked to the back. I had a table, I had a TV, and amongst everybody, and it was such a great experience. Uh, just, you know, just because you know I don't get to do that a lot, and to mm. see just the energy in this bar at what ten forty five in the morning to watch the f a cup <laughs> and you know you have guys that go there every weekend, but you have Liverpool fans come and Chelsea fans come it was it was an amazing experience there's, there's some good people down there at the globe I, and I just try just just following on for that I'm just curious like how often do you get i assume you got recognized at the globe, but like in day to day life, how often does that happen when you're Outside of the, when you're like going like shopping for groceries for for dinner or whatever, how often does does it happen to people in real life? I think you know the best part is uh, like I've I've heard some such funny things. You know, I'm walking by a guy the other day in Whole Foods. And he's like, "Greg, put me on the roster for the World Cup." <laughs> I was like, "Right on, bud." <laughs> like just a lot of things like that. Jules, you believe him? Because he said, like, oh, no. Like, he's like, I was just in the back of the bar somewhere, like, with a hand. And I'm like, no. Like, you don't think he was back in the no. back of the Globe Bar with velvet ropes, bodyguards, table I don't service. So, I love the idea that he's going there He's anyway. not that type. He's not that type. I love the idea that he's going there. I think he's You know, if Fabio Capello had gone... But when we've yeah. been in the Globe Bar, like, you know, that's what it would have been like, yeah? Yeah, probably, yeah. <laughs> but imagine you and I walking in and then say, is that him? And just, like, you know, like, <laughs> scratching your eyes, that, is that really him? Because you clearly don't expect to see him now. Yeah, I'm struck by how, you know, you get a certain image of somebody and look, mm. it's Greg Berhalter. It's not Jose Mourinho, right? Even as a player, he was a defender, you know, not... And he wasn't an Alexi Lalas no. in your face type defender where you feel like you don't know that much that much about him. And yeah. then, you know, a bit like the onion, you know, there's layers to, to peel away. And uh, I thought we got some thoughtful answers there. Definitely. And, the, you know, the, his relationship with the Reina family, I think, is, is fascinating. And also his experience in Europe. And clearly you can see how much that shaped him as well as a player, but also as a manager when he said he took all those little snippets from everywhere he's been. I think it's great to see the making of him as well as a manager. Well, that brings us to an end. Thanks for listening. Uh, go back and listen to some of our other Gab and Jules meets. Um, I think we've had some pretty good ones, some pretty interesting people. From Slatan Ibrahimovic to Giovanni Branchini, the first super agent, to Victor Montagliani, the president of CONCACAF, uh, to Sami Kadira, who's got some pretty wild stories as well. And look out also for, uh, I think this is going to go out on social, Greg Bearhalter's 
five aside. Is he going to pick Brad Friedel? Is he going to pick Tim Howard? Is he going to pick Casey Keller? Which two out of those three is he going to annoy? Maybe all three of them. 